Hello and welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Blaze Bryant. And I'm Bria Barthel. Welcome back, Blaze. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, we begin with hearing how Radix Environmental Sustainability Center is working with young people to tap maple trees throughout Albany to make maple syrup. Yum. Next, Blaze reports on the Disability Day of Mourning coming up on Wednesday, March 1st. After that, as part of his series on Is Radio Dying? Kaylin McPherson interviews Daniel Platt of WCAA in Albany. Then Moses Nagel talks with faculty in the Latin American and Caribbean Studies Department at the University at Albany. Finally, Blaze brings us a piece he pre-recorded with Hugh Johnson about Grapple, the region's current snowstorm, and more. But first, some headlines. Thank you, Bria. Great to be back with you. More snow will be coming our way. Snow could be moderate to heavy from Monday evening through all day Tuesday, according to News Channel 13. Pretty much every other weather outlet or news outlet, we could see five to eight inches by the end of this. And retired National Weather Service meteorologist Hugh Johnson will be, or I'm sorry, we'll have more on this storm or more on this snowstorm. About 45 minutes, including grapple and, well, maybe even another storm, Bria? Uh, No, no more storms allowed. Police are investigating an abandoned gun found inside Rivers Casino about 2 a.m. Friday morning. After a guard found the loaded gun, a bullet went into the ground, but no one was hurt. The gun did not belong to any of the security guards, and as of Monday evening, no suspect has been identified. Detroit, where police are investigating after a CDTA bus was shot at around 1.30 Saturday morning. The bus was targeted by gunmen on 2nd Avenue between 114th and 115th Streets. The bus was damaged, but thankfully the driver, who was the only one on the bus, was not injured. The suspect ran to a nearby house where they were arrested. With a gun and drugs, they also had some outstanding warrants and face additional charges because of those warrants at this point. The suspect's name has not yet been released. Boston Spa has been awarded a grant to eliminate barriers for people with disabilities. The village is getting $107,000 from the Capital District Transportation Committee. Uh, The grant will help the village improve the accessibility of bus stops, crosswalks, and sidewalks. The kickoff meeting for the Americans with Disabilities Act transition plan is happening on Thursday, March 2nd at 7 p.m. in the boardroom of the Ballston Spa School District at 70 Malta Avenue. And I will be speaking with one of those advocates who helped make this happen uh, just before the meeting takes place which you will hear here on hudson mohawk magazine finally some very sad news that broke late monday afternoon 
body of a missing 14-year-old Schenectady girl pulled from the Mohawk River has been identified. Autopsy results confirm it was Samantha Humphrey. She was found tied to a shopping cart at the bottom of the river last week. A fisherman spotted the bobbing head in the river, prompting Schenectady police to once again search for Samantha. On November 25th, 2022, which is the day after Thanksgiving, Humphrey met up with an ex-boyfriend uh, nearby at Riverside Park. Police are still investigating the situation. And that is it for the headlines. But a quick note for low-income elderly homeowners in New York State. You may be eligible for a tax reduction in addition to STAR and Enhanced STAR. Ask your municipality's assessor's office now. The application deadline is this Wednesday, March 1st. Good to know, Bria. Thank you very much. If you are just tuning in, you're listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding capital region through broad grassroots participation. Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can join our team, check out the Donate tab at mediasanctuary.org. Email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org or call us 518-272-2390. The Radix Environmental Sustainability Center in Albany's South End will soon have kids help tap maple trees in Albany to collect sap for making syrup. Hey, Mark Dunley brings us more on the story. We're joined by uh, Scott Kellogg, who's with the uh, Radic Center in uh, south end of Albany, and recently saw a news article that uh, one of the programs that uh, the Radic Center is involved with is actually um, working with, I guess, particularly young people, to have them sort of tap uh, maple trees uh, throughout the uh, city of Albany. So, Scott, what's the program about? So, yeah, we have been tapping maple trees all throughout the city of Albany and most concentrated in the south end of Albany, working with Albany School District to be tapping maple trees on the campuses of all 12 of the city's elementary schools, as well as in Lincoln Park with Radix's Eco-Justice After School Youth Employment Program. So yeah, we've been going around to able sorry, maple trees and inserting spiles into them and collecting the sap off those trees that will then be eventually brought to the Radix Center and boiled down, turned into syrup, and then redistributed back to the students in those schools, and additionally sold at farmer's markets to help support Radix's educational programs. Now, the article mentioned that there was um, blue tubing running between the trees. I assume that's sort of a collection system? Yeah, there's all different ways that you can collect sap. The method that we use is that we ins uh, drill a hole in the tree about an inch deep with a 5 eighths inch drill bit. 
and insert what's called a spile, which is um, sort of a little plastic barbed spout that goes into the hole uh, in the tree in one end and then has a barbed fitting on the other that a blue hose is stuck over. And then the hose runs down to a five-gallon bucket that sits on the ground with a sealed lid on it. The hose goes through the lid on the bucket, and that way sap comes out of the tree and goes directly into the bucket. And by using five-gallon buckets, it reduces the frequency that we would have to otherwise be collecting them, which uh, makes it easier for us as far as uh, staffing and labor. Now, I myself did some um, maple syrup collecting oh, maybe a decade ago. Um, my recollection is by the time you um, you know boil the, the sap down, the amount of maple syrup is uh, much less than when you started with. How much syrup are you actually able to, to produce out of this operation? Yeah, it varies, but roughly with trees with a high sugar content, uh, sugar maples in particular, most of the trees that we're tapping are probably Norway maples that have a slightly lower sugar content, but it's about a 40 to 1 ratio of sap to syrup. So yeah, most sap is about 2% sugar. So you're doing a lot of water removal, essentially, to to concentrate those sugars into the form of syrup. We do that a couple of different ways. We rely on initially what's called freeze distillation, where ice will form in the buckets, and then we remove that because uh, that what's freezing is just water, and the sugar has concentrated in the sap. So that's one way to get rid of water. We then will put all the sap through a reverse osmosis system, which has really recently become an affordable technology that can double or even quadruple the concentration of sugars. And then finally, we'll take that concentrated sap and put it into what's called an evaporator, which is a flat metal pan at the sugar shack at Radix, which is a structure really designed specifically for the purpose of boiling maple sap. And we will build a wood fire and burn off, boil off the, the remaining water until we're left with a, a more concentrated sap, about one inch deep. And then it finally gets finished off on a stovetop where we can be much more precise with the heat controls to finally make the syrup. So that's the process in a nutshell. Now, you know, my understanding of climate change has really been impacting the um, maple syrup, um, you know, process. Um, and it's been changing from season to season. So I understand this year, uh, the maple syrup is really running quite a bit earlier than normal. Yeah, uh, honestly, I haven't even known when to start because we had a week here in Albany immediately after New Year's where temperatures were in the 50s. And it's been a pretty wacky weather winter. But um, unfortunately, I think this is indicative of future trends in climate in New York State. And maple syrup and maple tapping, which is a, a huge industry in New York State and the Northeast region as a whole, depends on extremely climate-specific conditions. SAP only runs 
when daytime temperatures are above freezing and when nighttime temperatures are below freezing. As long as you have those conditions, you'll generally get saffron. Now, what we're seeing in and 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 maple tapping and maple syrup production isn't done too much further south than us to any large extent. There's a little bit in Pennsylvania, but not much more further south than that, just because the winters are milder and they don't have that long of a period of time when they have the, the right climatic conditions for, for saffron. And, and probably also the fact that there's fewer maple trees. However, uh, it's been interesting from a climate science and climate justice perspective to look at how the, the earliest date of us tapping has changed over the years. And this is by far the earliest that we've ever set our taps. Uh, so that is a disturbing trend, to be sure. But it's a way to frame conversations around it, and particularly the work that we do with youth about having an awareness of that kind of thing and why the effects of climate change will impact us and our day-to-day -day lives. Now, we have had you on before to talk about the uh, tree planting you've been doing in the South End, both to have fruit trees to um, you know, help produce you know, food for, for local residents, but also you know, helping with, um, you know, sh shade in and, and, and reducing uh, heat in, uh, you know, urban situations. You know, in the last two minutes left, what are some of the other things that the uh, Radix Center is, you know, focused on upon right at the moment? So this maple tapping program is closely related to, uh, or can even really be thought a part of the South End Biocultural Diversity Forest Program that is ongoing in that we're trying to develop a ethic of reciprocity between local residents, particularly youth, and the health and well-being of trees and forests in the urban ecosystem. And by engaging in a sustainable practice like tapping maple syrup, which can be done year after year without any long-term impacts on the health of the tree, teach about that interconnectedness and how it's within people's interest to care about the well-being of trees when they can see how it can directly benefit them in terms of not only providing food, but also in creation of say, shade, of improving air quality, enhancement of biodiversity, carbon sequestration, improvement of, of, of water infiltration. So yeah, really looking at it all through the lens of climate justice and thinking again about how matters of equity and justice and fairness and race and class apply to things such as the urban forest. So in the last 45 seconds, if people want to find out more about the Roddick Center or some of the programs you have coming up, uh, what's the best way to do that? People can go to our website, which is www.radixcenter.org. You can also visit our Facebook page where uh, we probably actually do a better job of uh, keeping it updated. We're also going to be having a Maple Sap Boil Down event on Saturday, March 11th at the Radic Center, 153 Grand Street from noon to 2 p.m. That's open to the public. You can come see how the sap is collected, how it goes through reverse osmosis. Have a fun time with us as we uh, boil down the sap and get to taste some uh, concentrated sweetened sap while you're there. So I welcome everybody to come. It's a free event. Thank you very much, Scott Kellogg, Radic Center, South End of Albany. This has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk magazine.
Pretty wacky winter indeed, Scott. But just thinking of maple syrup has me ready for pancakes. Every year on March 1st, the disability community comes together for the Disability Day of Mourning. We commemorate those lives who were tragically cut short by a family member or caregiver who decided to kill someone simply because they have a disability. According to the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, over the past 40 years, nearly 16,000 people with disabilities have been killed by filicide. Last year, I spoke with Katie Carroll from the Association on Aging in New York. So the Disability Day of Mourning is an opportunity to come together and um, acknowledge people who have been murdered by uh, family or other caregivers, um, disabled people who have been uh, murdered by family or other caregivers. Um, we're talking about people of all ages, uh, genders, races, disability types, and um, all over the world. It really is just, it's unfathomable to think why anyone would murder a disabled person because they're viewed as a burden and yet the i don't want to say mass killing of disabled people but because it is non-discriminatory as you just said why do these things happen that's a really uh interesting question blaze so um you use the word unfathomable um i also think it's unfathomable however um plenty of people don't think it's unfathomable and when we look at uh, particularly media coverage of these murders, we tend to see a pattern. And I would like to refer people to uh, the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, who really helps make uh, the Disability Day of Mourning happen. And uh, the anti-filicide toolkit uh, goes into a lot of this. But basically, when we look at the media coverage of these murders, we see um, a, a disturbing trend. One in which uh, the um, the murderers are often cast as the victims. We see um, community members coming out talking um, in support of the murderers, um, lightened sentencing, uh, reasons given, all kinds of reasons given for why their actions were justified in some way. Um, those reasons are often uh, things like the disabled person was a burden to them. Um, they're better off dead. Um, they just, uh, things like that. And um, so unfortunately it's not unfathomable. And this, this day of mourning is not just, it's not just a vigil, but it's an educational opportunity. It's, it's meant to bring awareness to this really disturbing trend. For sure. Katie Carroll from the Association of Aging New York joining me, Blaze Bryant, here on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Why March 1st? I don't know. Because it it really is interesting. I mean, at least when you kind of break it down here in New York sphere of things, because that's a month away from when the state budget is passed, even though that's not how it works in in most states, but it certainly is interesting that, that we celebrate it on March 1st, which really, in the years that I've been doing disability advocacy with you, 
uh, really seems to be the beginning of the sprint to the legislators and other elected officials to voice what we are for, what we oppose, and frankly, what we need. On the topic of, so you mentioned the state budget um, and state activity. Um, and I have, I have two thoughts about that. One is that I do, I do think part of the Disability Day of Mourning is meant to get away from this idea that um, these murders are justified when people have a lack of services. And I believe, um, and I, I think many other people believe that there is a significant lack of services and support and um, funding behind those things um, for people with disabilities. However, um, plenty of people who do not have adequate services do not murder their, their family members or the people who rely upon them. Um, so I think, I think we can do both things. We can bring attention to the fact that um, it, it is never okay it is never justified to murder someone with a disability because they have a disability um, or because you view them as a burden. And we can simultaneously um, advocate for better, um, better resources. And when it comes to action, or you mentioned um, the state, um, there are a couple things that people can do to advocate to, to, to fight against this trend. One would be calling out the media when they when they, um, in their judgments about the person who was murdered or the person who, or the murderer themselves. Uh, we need to call out instances of uh, victim blaming, of, um, of justification. Uh, we also need to be vigilant. And if we, if we think that someone is in danger, um, if someone is um, at risk of abuse, we need to we need to know where to go to report those things, um, and prevent and prevent harm to our disabled siblings. Absolutely, and really, the only time, at least in recent memory, where the murder of disabled people has been in the spotlight is because of places like the Albany, or I should say, the Times Union, since they now cover the Hudson Valley, have really shined a spotlight on what ha- happened in nursing homes because of the executive orders and the policies of the former governor. Yet I highly doubt that is going to get the same amount of play on Tuesday when we have the disability day of mourning. You know, you, you also have an attorney background or a law background. So, you know, kind of from that lens, what can the disability community do or really the public in general do to make sure that the light on this issue continues to be illuminated as in having been to a disability day in morning, the list seems nearly endless in terms of the people who are killed. Yes. And uh, listeners can go to disability hyphen memorial.org where um, a list is kept um, of people that we know who have been um, who are victims of filicide and you can see there just the the diversity of people um, who have been murdered um, in this way 
Uh, I so I I work at the Association on Aging in New York. So I'll just highlight one one possible answer to your question, which is uh, really promoting understanding and awareness around elder abuse, um, and uh, arming ourselves with the resources to recognize um, symptoms and patterns of abuse and knowing what to do about them. This year's event takes place on Wednesday, March 1st, 2023. Here in New York, the co-organizers of the event are the New York Association on Independent Living, the Center for Disability Rights, and Not Dead Yet. To read more about the Disability Day of Mourning, visit autisticadvocacy.org. Reporting for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, I'm Blaze Bryant. The annual Disability Day of Mourning will be this Wednesday, March 1st. You can find out more information, including registration, at the Facebook page for New York Association on Independent Living. That's NYA Independent Living. Thank you, Bria. If you are just tuning in, I'm Blaze Bryant. You are listening to Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network. W-O-O-C-L-P 105.3 FM Troy. W-O-O-G-L-P 92.7 FM Troy. W-O-O-S-L-P 98.9 FM Schenectady. W-O-O-A-L-P 106.9 FM Albany. Streaming online at mediasanctuary.org. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. And I'm Bria Barthel. If you like what you hear, you can support this program by telling a friend, joining our team, or providing financial support. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org. Now on to our next story. Blaze? Sure. WCAA in Albany is one of the local stations that broadcasts Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Well, they used to and. In our next story, Kalen McPherson talks with Daniel Platt, who has become the new station manager. And WCAA is a part of Grand Street Community Arts, where it has been housed. And this is this interview is part of Kalen's series, Is Radio Dying? Well, guess not. This is Kalen McPherson for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I am talking with Daniel Platt. So can you tell me a little bit about yourself? Uh, sure. Short version. Um, I was doing, my name is Dan Platt. I've been a resident of Albany for my whole life here in the downtown area. Um, I went to school for architecture between the years of 2006 and 2012, where I started being a political activist, being an interest in organizing radical politics. And in doing so, um, shifted towards uh, some uh, more protest uh, activities to more community projects, infrastructure, uh, in the grassroots fashion. And uh, what do you do at WCAA Grand Arts? So um, the title I've given myself is just radio station coordinator. Usually general manager is the usual title. Um, but, uh, we want to do it more horizontally, but at the moment I am coordinating kind of station management activities. So mostly, uh, focus on the programming and then maybe I'll shift to other duties. But at the moment I'm, I kind of do one thing at a time. 
one thing at a time kind of person. So for those who don't know about Grand Street Arts and WCA, can you explain a little bit about what it is? Sure. Um, it's about a five-year-old from the starting point, at least going on air, but it's a bit older. Um, there's always been a kernel of an idea in the south end of Albany to have a grassroots radio station. Um, one of our producers just mentioned to me today in a phone call about how there was a group of uh, residents who wanted to have a kind of a black-run um, radio station, but the means weren't really there to do so. Um, like um, the Center for Independent Media, um, it was in the, in the last uh, 12 years that it's been even allowable through a lawsuit on the FCC that there can be low-power stations. So with that uh, happening, uh, the ability to open a, a, a low-power station it was Grand Street Community Arts, which was a somewhat established uh, nonprofit doing arts programming, to start a radio station. Um, and then it went from there. So the last five years, it's been on the air um, with roughly a dozen to 15 producers at any time. Um, and also, uh, in the last two years, we've been a, become a Pacifica affiliate. Oh, wow. That's cool. Pacifica affiliate. I didn't know that one. <laughs> Yeah, it's uh, it's been really great because, well, um, before the station went on air, um, first what was organized was a grassroots radio station conference. So that way, when Grand Street started their station, they would have all of this knowledge and expertise, basically listening to the experiences and the tips of other stations, community stations that has that had been around for the last few years, maybe longer because they were a nonprofit station like a, the main Pacifica stations. And and that was really successful, had a lot of great workshops, met in people, and anyone who was interested in the station at the time was there, as well as um, the first general manager would do regular public informational meetings to recruit people. Uh, yeah, and it was there that Pacifica people were there to represent their station, uh, not the, their system, uh, and, the, and the network of how, you know, they have a platform allowing any affiliate station to upload their shows and share them with uh, with anyone else who wants to uh, download them. So all Pacifica stations can share their content with each other, uh, and that's pretty seamless. It's really good, um, and it allows for diversity beyond any one station. Cool. In terms of your programming on your station, um, is uh, the most of your programs that air on WCA produced in-house? And what are some of the programs that are produced? You know, are they arts, news, music, etc. and so Yeah, forth? we we really try to keep it as various as possible. Um, it's also based on what people come to us. People have their own ideas of what they want to do. Half our music half our news or half our talk. Um, it can be whatever people are interested in. Uh, and that goes for the Pacifica content as well. So it's it kind of feels like half and half. Um, and we kind of try to keep it that way. Um, it was, I felt, um, I remember one past GM saying we had 30 producers, but that seems a little high. Maybe it was more around 20. Um, at the moment, we have... 12 active producers and it will soon be 15 
uh, by the month's end because I'm slowly bringing people back after the station was down last year for a significant time. Not everything that you guys produce goes onto the Pacifica network? The way you uh, said that... Well, it goes into their system. Um, It's a matter of outreach of whether another station plays it, but it is available. Oh, okay. Um, And then, so why did you guys go off the air for a couple of months? You know, uh, you you disappeared there for a couple of months. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. Um, So it was a matter of... um, like any uh, grassroots organization, sometimes it's difficult to have consistent leadership right, yes. uh, or a consistent team. You know, sometimes it's uh, people burn out uh, or people's circumstances change. Right. In this case, um, it was the confluence of – in our first few years, it's, it was rough going because there was always this um, precarity of fundraising and paying for the st- station and uh, the station being self-funding and developing the content, the programming, and the volunteer base. And it was difficult to do one or the other, and anyone who was kind of leading the station, coordinating, general managing, um, found themselves in a position where they had to do one or the other. And so, but, and then was until um, COVID, actually, which allowed certain people who were, uh, involved or volunteering to really go all in. And this was the case of our last in name, or at least in practice, general manager, uh, Mr. Paul Smart. But he, in the uh, intervening year, so he was able to do a ton of stuff really quickly because he was doing nothing else, like others who were in line. And he also had a ton of experience in community media, particularly newspapers, but also some radio. And so he was able to do a lot at once, more than was done in the last three years, and attempted to get others up to speed to co-manage things. But um, the skill levels are very various, and the lockdown was not forever. And this meant that he needed to go back to work, and then eventually he develops his own plans to move out of the country. Right. So um, he did his best to train everyone up to kind of fill his shoes this didn't really fully happen, but it was also a matter of everyone who is there producing is already putting in 10 to 12 volunteer hours making their content, or at least putting in effort and man hour, labor hours into, into the programming, right? So it's almost like throwing more volunteer hours on. Right. Um, many, like myself, did not, were not willing to do that. And I'd, I'd been the lead on other community projects like Food Not Bombs, and, uh, and other things like Occupy All of Me. And I was really wanted to be kind of, I did not want to be running things. Um, I was kind of, did not want to step up as long as possible. Um, and so despite um, best efforts, um, he moved. And especially because he had less time before he moved, uh, this left a very large gap in, um, in leadership, pretty much. Uh, there was not quite the step up that he envisioned. Um, so, and but then um, things went bad where uh, one of our computers failed. So, without the proper means and infrastructure, tech support, let's say, set up to fix it all, um, it was kind of left to sit until I <laughs> was uh, my van was forced to step up. And so I've been coordinating since, doing my best uh, with 
those around me because it's not just me. Um, I also rely on everyone else involved, um, including Grand Street people and our other producers, slowly training them up um, in the months, in the last few months. So we're really getting there. I'm very optimistic. Slash, I have hope. Optimism is kind of where you just assume things will work out, which could have been where we were at two years ago. Um, Now it's a matter of hope. I hope things will working out are working out. And we also have uh, some uh, local tech help that will solve some of the general issues. So we've changed our software from something that was open source as well. So that was something else that was kind of in play where we were using an open source software, but uh, which, you know, it's good because it's very flexible and it's free, but it also means only 10 people in the country know how to fix problems with it. Um, which was why we ran into a really big wall. So we've changed our software and things are moving forward. So it wasn't just one big problem. It was a bunch of different problems that just ran into a big storm. Yeah. So like, you know, the kind of thing where over a few years things compile where you just kind of ignore, you push aside or you push ahead based on the need to kind of make a project happen. This has been Keelan for the Hudson Mohawk magazine with another episode of Is Radio Dying? Talking with Daniel Platt of WCAA. For Albany listeners, you can hear WCAA at 107.3 FM, but don't change stations now. To hear earlier episodes in Kaylin's series on Is Radio Dying? Or a longer version of this story, check out our website. Spoiler alert, Kaylin concludes that it is not dying. Indeed, radio is not. Now, Moses Nagel brings us a report on the Latin American and Caribbean Studies program at the University of Albany. LAX, or Latin American, Caribbean, and Latinx Studies, is a unique department at UAlbany. It incorporates multiple disciplines in studying issues that affect Latin and Caribbean people in the United States as well as in the context of their countries of origin. I spoke with Pedro Caban, a longtime professor, about the origins of the department. The development of Puerto Rican studies initially... I say Puerto Rican studies because LAX has its origins in the Puerto Rican studies program. So the program was established in 1970. And the establishment of Puerto Rican studies at the University of Albany was part of a basically a, a Puerto Rican student uprising. The students were calling on the administration to provide courses you know, that dealt with the Puerto Rican experience. They felt that their histories were not adequately covered. So this was basically a collective demand by Puerto Rican college students and administrators and community members demanding that the university create these spaces for independent research and education on the Puerto Rican experience. As a consequence of that, then Puerto Rican studies departments were established in a number of campuses and These programs eventually morphed into full-fledged academic departments. And the fundamental difference between a program and a department is the department has its own faculty, is responsible for developing its own curriculum, and has a measure of autonomy and resources that often programs don't. Now, to continue the story of uh, our department here, what was innovative of Puerto Rican studies at the time was that it sought to look at the connections between Puerto Ricans living on the island and Puerto Ricans living in the United States, and often referred to as the diaspora. 
So there was this transnational notion that you actually could not study one population without really being acquainted with the other. So the program also realized that in terms of then this research component, it had a broadness perspective. So my predecessors then said, well, we are actually a transnational studies program, Puerto Rico and Puerto Ricans. But the same thing perspective could apply to the study of the Caribbean peoples, Dominicans and Cubans and Haitians, right? So over the years, then what was a narrowly focused program evolved, which had both graduate and undergraduate component to it. And it brought in, oh, 12, 13 faculty members in addition to the core of six or seven. So we had a very broad base then of expertise that we could use to provide an innovative academic experience. I say innovative because it was also lax, one of the first programs in the nation to integrate the study of area studies, which is basically Caribbean and Latin America, with what is called race and ethnic studies, which is a study of minority populations, as they were called at the time, in the United States. So that pattern of looking at Puerto Rico and Puerto Ricans in the United States then was kind of what up to scale by looking at the relationship between Latin American peoples residing in this country and their countries of origin. So the integration of both ethnic and area studies was innovative. And I will say that other universities in the last 10 years have basically built on that model. So it basically set the standard, I would argue. Maybe it sounds a little grandiose, but I think it did in terms of saying to understand the complexity of the Latin American experience in the United States, one has to take a hemispheric approach. Johanna Mondoño is also a professor in the department. She arrived in 2012 and was impressed with the unique work being done. The graduate students who are coming to LACS are doing really important research or focusing on topics that are quite varied and interdisciplinary in scope, like Dominican hip hop or migrant communities in the United States from the Caribbean and Central America and South America. And they're doing it, and this is really important and what makes it stand out, I think, in many ways, that they're doing it by thinking transnationally. So they're moving away from a national framework, which I think is still very pervasive in other units in the Northeast and the nation as a whole. So I joined the department in 2012. And in 2012, the department had faculty that was focusing on the literature of the Caribbean. There was also a Brazilianist. There were Puerto Rican studies scholars, um, Mexican studies scholars. So I focused on Latinx cultural studies and Latinx urban studies. And my research specifically examines Latinx urbanisms in the United States um, with a focus on design and the built environment, how the built environment is produced to reflect Latinx culture or cultural expression. And I really have loved to teach this particular topic at SUNY Albany because so many of our students are coming from urban centers of the state, um, many of them grew up in Brooklyn or the Bronx or Queens. And so whenever we talk about these topics in the classroom, they immediately have a lot of excitement about it, but they're also very generous in 
helping me understand what are some of the most pressing issues in this larger area of study. And so when I entered the department in 2012, there were seven faculty members, including myself. And I believe that it really reflected the kind of diversity that one thinks about when saying the name of the department, right? Latinx studies, Caribbean studies, and Latin American studies, all three fields were really visible in the research profiles of the faculty members, but also in the actual teaching that we did in the department. So in 2012, we had seven faculty members, including myself. Now in 2023, we have four faculty members. And so what we're seeing is a really unfortunate situation where the department is not being provided with the resources that we need. We're really being strangled, right? It seems from my vantage point that it's unmerited and that other public institutions in this northeastern um, region of the United States are understanding that they need to hire new faculty members in similar units like ours. And the reasons for doing so are quite obvious, right? The Latinx population continues to grow. The Latinx population in New York State continues to grow and disperse. We're talking about a population that 20 years ago, 30 years ago, most lived downstate, New York City specifically. But today, they're dispersing throughout the entire state, right? And places very close to SUNY Albany. Professor Caban also spoke of his concern for the future of the program. Yeah, I'll be blunt. I think the university itself should reassess its treatment of blacks and should ask fundamental questions. Should we reinvest in that unit and try to make it academically sustainable and viable? I think it it has made and will continue to make substantial contributions to this university at different levels. I mean, I just see in the eyes of my students who who never knew this, this aspect about Puerto Rico or Cuba, or didn't know about the histories of Latinos in the United States, who come to our university with a high school education that basically ignores that reality. And they come to our classes, and, and this is an experience that they've never had before. And rather than feeling they've been victimized, Rather than feeling that we should maintain our separateness, they feel empowered to begin to make valuable, important changes leading to an advancement of our society. I mean, we teach inclusion, not exclusion. We promote the idea of developing the skills that students need to have a measure of control over their lives. I mean, that's what we do. We try to find ways to make the society appreciate the contributions that our people have made and can continue to make, right? And and Blacks plays a role in that. It has historically played a role in that. Blacks, virtually more than any other department, has generated PhDs, Latino PhDs and Latino MAs. And the number of Latino PhDs and MAs in the nation, PhDs in particular, in the social science humanities is very, very small. If we graduate three or four PhDs from Blacks, Every year, you're making a national contribution to increasing the pool of Latina, Latino PhDs. And that's basically being undermined. Wow. So I'm very passionate about this because I think, you know, we stand to make a contribution to the university and to society at large. 
and that should be recognized, should be celebrated, and investments should be made. Reporting for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, this is Moses Nagel. This is the first studies program that Moses explored at UAlbany. He'll report on some of the other special programs that are also in danger of losing funding uh, in future episodes. I'm Blaze Bryant for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Joining me here is retired meteorologist Hugh Johnson, who is still in Florida walking on a beach as we are about to talk about, well, a snowstorm. So, Hugh, enjoy it while you can, and thanks as always for joining us here. Well, good morning, Blaze. Yes, it is a beautiful morning down here in uh Florida. We have a we're under a, a strong ridge, but unfortunately, the Albany area is not. Uh, there is a storm. There's actually two storms going to be tracking towards the area. The first primary storm is still working up towards the Great Lakes, but because it's being blocked by colder air coming down, <clears throat> it's going to force energy to come towards the coast and redevelop a secondary coastal lull. And and we're going to be in this convergence area, and it's going to move right over us tonight. And the burst of heavy snow moves in. And uh, maybe up to an inch an hour. It's a good old-fashioned snowstorm, Blaze. It's not going to have any mix. I don't think there's going to be any rain with this one. It's going to end later Tuesday, but most of the heavy stuff is going to come tonight through the morning drive tomorrow. Um, we're looking at around a, at least around a half a foot of snow. And if we're lucky or unlucky, we could get up to double-digit snowfall. It's not out of the question. We could get 10 inches from this. That would be an overachiever, but it is possible. Right. Well, I mean, we are what about seven inches below normal for the. Or I'm sorry, or fourteen inches below normal for the season. About fifteen, actually, and yep. for the month, about seven below. Right. Yep. We could even it up. We could easily even up at least for the monthly average. Absolutely. All right. Well, Hugh Johnson with us. Uh, well, with me here, Blaze Bryant on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. We've talked about this before, but it's worth revisiting you the mild conditions that we've talked about and as you said a couple of weeks ago when you and i last uh, spoke about our weather musings here winter the the sender as as we're kind of thinking about spring well pull the brakes on that and uh, this does have to do with stratospheric warming does it not Partially. I mean, you can't blame it all on that. But, yeah, we definitely saw that the polar vortex, which is nicely wrapped up and tightly up way up north to much of January and, and the first half of February, has indeed collapsed. Not completely, but it has definitely weakened and has allowed cold air to surge south. Now, here's the problem, though. The ridge is holding strong. The one down in Florida, it's been hot down here. We've had days near 90 inland here, not too far from here, well into the 80s here. So you have this battleground this confluent zone or baroclinic zone, if you will, where storms are tracking along big temperature changes. That's what storms like to track on. And that's just to the south of Albany. And we're right in the sweet spot now. And that's what we're going to see for the next couple of weeks. It looks like. So you're, you'll be coming back from Florida at a good, at a good time then. <laughs> not sure. I'm not really <laughs> thrilled. <laughs> That's uh, what I like to call just straight up dumb luck. That's that's how I yep. refer to these things. So you've seen some kind of interesting weather. I remember a couple of weeks ago when we talked, it was in the 40s and 
now it's been up in the 90s lately down there? 80s, 80s. 90 80s. near 90 inland, um, but 80s is still warmer than normal. Our normal high is low 70s, and we've been way above that for an entire week now. And uh, one interesting thing that happened was in the middle of the day, it was a warm day, it was near 80, and I, it caught me by surprise. We had a, a fog invasion out, you know, this isn't New England, this is Florida, and the water temperatures are in the low 60s off the the, 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 the ocean, mid, maybe mid-60s, but it just came in, Blaze. It was just the weirdest thing. And it was like, we were about to go down the beach, and I, all of a sudden I saw the weird-looking thing on the horizon, and I was like, oh my gosh, there it is. And uh, there was just this pocket of fog that just rolled right in for about two hours. <laughs> wow. Yeah. It, which I would imagine is something you don't see too terribly often down there. Well, guy said he see about once a month down there. Yeah, which is a little surprising because I, I honestly thought that, you know, I mean, because the water is not that cold. If it was in the 50s, I'd say, yeah, but it was, but the dew points, here's the, here's the thing that surprised me how dew points have been up close to 70, even though it's only February. I, I would have figured dew points closer to 60, but I mean, we've had a lot of days. So, you know, the dew points are very high and that's why we had the fog. It didn't take much to bring it, even with the water temperatures in the mid upper 60s. That air got saturated and it shifted to the southeast and it just brought this fog back in. Oh, well, sounds like climate change to me. Sounds like something weird, but the climate change, I want to just mention that this weakening of the polar vortex, we talked about this, could be a sign of climate change. This could be happening more, especially at the end of the winter, because what happens is at the end of the winter, it won't necessarily reform again, it won't strengthen again. And then, so the cold air is left to kind of hang down. And I don't know, I've noticed that we've had a lot of like cold early springs the last few years. I'm not saying that's necessarily a permanent pattern change, but that's definitely been something that I've noticed. Um, going back for the last five or 10 years, we get, we've had really having a cold winter since 2015, uh, 14, 15, a really, really cold, solid winter. We've had above normal winters, but then we've got whacked in March and even April. Uh, 18 was especially brutal in April. It was really cold, and there were a couple other ones too. So hopefully that that could be a, a pattern change that we're going to be dealing with more and more. I tried to forget about that winter because, well, that was my first winter out, fresh out of college and having to commute to and from work every day mm. and <laughs> dealing with buses and snow and the oh snow my. banks and all that stuff and. When you Three nor'easters that March. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, that was uh, that was a brutal one. Thanks for bringing that back up in the <laughs> folds of my memory here on a Monday morning, Hugh Johnson. But, but what was even worse yeah. was April. April was even worse. Yeah, you know the snow wasn't the worst we saw, but it was pretty bad. And then April was just cold. It just didn't warm up. I mean, it was in the 30s and 40s throughout much of April. Yeah, what are the odds you think we're going to see something like that? Unfortunately, higher than normal because again we've had this weakening you know, of the polar vortex and the, the residuals, uh, uh, you know, can last up to two months, up to two months. Sometimes it's a lot shorter than that. Let's hope it's not the case. I don't think it'll be as cold as as, as April 18, but it does seem like that that could be happening because that year we got slammed with nor'easters and we got one here. We got a quasi nor'easter today and then the, a possibly bigger one on the weekend. Oh, all right. Well, wonderful. Hugh Johnson with us, National Weather or former National Weather Service meteorologist. <laughs> or retired is the better word. It's a Monday morning. Had about five sips of coffee, but uh, we'll get through. Now, tell us about this weather term grapple. I've been grappling with it. <laughs> Very good one. 
Oh, grapple is basically all okay. So, okay, so you have hail, you have raindrops coming through the clouds, and then you have a very strong, unstable atmosphere causing a very, a very buoyant atmosphere and causing the warm the droplets to go back up and and go back to the freezing layer. Snow, it's uh, grapple's kind of the same thing with snow. It's usually a very an unstable atmosphere, but they're flakes instead of liquid drops. So they come through the clouds as snow, and then they they start to melt. The temperatures are at or above freezing somewhere. There's a layer at or above freezing, and then they get thrusted back, and then they they get they either refreeze or they get rimed with super cool droplets. A lot of times, clouds actually have super cool droplets in them. I won't get into the whole physics of it, but so you can get that rhyming on top of the snowflake. So it no longer has that, you know, those six uh, crystals. It has the, uh, it looks like a mothball. <laughs> oh, well, very interesting. And that came from Bria, who will be doing the yeah. wrap up here in about 90 seconds or so. So we have a little bit of time here, Hugh. Two storms on the way. Give us a little bit of a preview of what we're supposed to be in for for the week ahead. It's going to be a very uh, ch- a changeable week in typical of very early March. We might actually get a day where we get up near 50 on Thursday. I think we're going to have the snow today, uh, no, not today, tonight, tomorrow, and then we'll have a, a, a drying out day, feasibly cold Wednesday, warmer Thursday with a few showers late in the day, and then turning colder Friday, and then we got to watch for the storm late Friday into the weekend. Uh, that's the day I'm coming back, so I'm going to be really watching it so I don't get stuck in it. I'm hoping I can I can beat it out from the south, but we'll see. But it will come in some late time, late Friday, and into Saturday, and we could that could the potential is there for that to be even bigger than this storm. Oh, really? Again, it's, yeah, yeah. Well, that might be a, a, a full blow a blown nor'easter. This storm, the biggest, the strongest part of the nor'easter is actually going to slide to our south. We're probably not going to get into the brunt of, of the, the worst of it this storm, and that's why I don't think we're going to have a blockbuster this time. But we're going to have a nice, you know, we're going to have a snow pretty similar to what we had in December, maybe an inch or two more, like I said, around half a foot or so. <laughs> All right. Well, retired meteorologist Hugh Johnson with the National Weather Service. Thanks, as always. We'll catch up with you next week. All right. You got it, Blaze. Great piece, Blaze, even if not great weather forecast. And that's our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. That was Blaze Bryant, and I'm Bria Barthel. Our engineer is the ever-wonderful Sina Bazila Hickey. She'll probably edit that out before the show runs. We want to thank all of the volunteers who made this episode possible. Contributors to today's episode, besides Blaze, Sina, and myself, are Mark Dunley, Kaylin McPherson, and Moses Nagel. And thanks to you, our listeners, who make this all worthwhile.